Today we're talking about innovations in glaucoma, specifically pertaining to minimally invasive surgery. For example, MIGS. A lot of the research that's coming out in glaucoma is focusing on this topic. So we have experts who will shed some light on this topic for us. So our first guest is uh, Dr. Zay Chong. She joined the Tulane Ophthalmology Department after completing a fellowship in glaucoma at the University of Iowa Department of Ophthalmology. During her fellowship, she trained with international leaders in the field in traditional as well as minimally invasive glaucoma surgery. She completed her undergrad studies in biology and business administration at the University of Southern California. And she's just been an incredible mentor and amazing role model for a lot of students that I'm familiar with, as well as my time at Tulane, for example. I had a great time working with her. So it's a pleasure and honor to have you here, Dr. Dong. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very excited. This is a really wonderful platform, and I'm just honored to be part of it. And we are pleased to have you here. It's exciting. With that, I'll also introduce our other panelist, Dr. Enzor. Dr. Ricky Enzor has been a close friend and colleague at IT, and she is currently in University of Indiana, where she's completing her glaucoma fellowship, and she's also a new mom. So congratulations on that, and thanks for making time to be here. Thank you so much, Karin. It's a privilege to be back. And Catherine, congrats on your new status as a PhD student. I also did a PhD in microimmuno. And so that's, I'll be curious to hear about your journey over the next few years. Dr. Zong and I were just establishing, you know, some mutual connections and friends through Tulane and Pinnett. And it just, it's, I, I find every day that it's just such a small world in ophthalmology and, and the world just seems to get, get smaller and, and closer knit the longer I'm in this amazing field. So uh, in a bit of an update, I just finished my glaucoma fellowship at Indiana University and really well-rounded training in traditional and minimally invasive glaucoma with fabulous teachers and mentors. And I'm just really grateful to be on today and have the chance to be part of this. We are glad that you could join and thanks for sharing that update as well. It's been a little bit and I'm glad IT can be that place where people who think alike can come together. So that's wonderful. We are also expecting a third panelist. That's Dr. Paul Singh. He has had some troubles with his car, so he's just getting that sorted. In the meantime, we will go ahead and get started here about today's topic, which is innovation and glaucoma and, and MIGS specifically as well. So our first theme for today is essentially talking about your guys' background and how did you guys get to you know what you do now? Are there any anecdotes that you can share? And uh, perhaps even some aha moments that you had that that make you go like, oh, wow, that that really changed the course of my life. I found ophthalmology, obviously, every, like everyone else during medical school. So unfortunately for the field of ophthalmology, as you guys know, it's not a required rotation for a lot of medical schools. Uh, fortunately, it's becoming more and more common. And I think gradually that will become part of the core curriculum. But I had to, you know, to explore my interests. I was someone who kind of loved every rotation and for the medical students out there who are listening, that's okay. You know, it's okay to love everything. That's actually a really good quality, obviously. I think so. I think that I'm biased. But I also knew that I wanted to definitely do a procedural specialty because I really loved working with my hands. General surgery just didn't really pique my interest as much as I would like it to. So I started kind of exploring the other surgical subspecialties. And in order to do that, I actually had to postpone some of my core rotations, which was very difficult time because to be able to, to make that decision early on in your third year. But I did my ophthalmology rotation. And at the same time, I was like started exploring research. And it's that really was my aha moment because there was just so much that we still didn't know about ophthalmology, you know, particularly, and I was fortunate to have great mentors in medical school who were all glaucoma specialists, Jim Tsai, Nils Lowen, who were just so passionate about their work and just such incredible people in every way. Having those mentors certainly inspired me as well, but also just doing glaucoma research made me recognize there was so much potential for discovery and innovation still. 
And that's kind of what it did for me is that this is, this is what I want to do. You know, it has the really perfect combination of getting to know your patients, the longitudinal care, but also getting to do lots and lots of a variety of different procedures, surgeries. And at the same time, also being able to do research and being at the forefront of potentially innovating the field and really helping patients and also helping our understanding of what the disease processes are. So that's kind of how, and I knew that glaucoma was probably what I wanted to do. And then I started a residency and I did my residency here at Tulane where I met another great mentor. So that's kind of the theme of my life. It's just my mentors have really influenced the way I have shaped my career as well. And fortunately, I, you know, my mentor at Tulane was Dr. Ramesh Ayala, who's also a glaucoma specialist. I, I may have self-selected into glaucoma that way, but he was you know, equally inspiring in different ways, a visionary. And so that kind of really reaffirmed my interest in glaucoma. And I did my fellowship where I, again, worked with incredible, incredible incredible minds, you know, Lee Allward, Dan Bett, John Fingerts. And, and I felt like, you know, I really learned a lot in fellowship. And then I came back and joined the faculty. And, you know, my goal is to kind of hope that my residents and my fellows, you know, have similar experiences where they have good mentors who guide them to what they love to do. Wow, that that is really profound. I think one of the themes that we often hear at IT is standing on shoulders of giants. And I think your story really hits the nail on the head with, with that. And I think a lot of us can draw from that. So thanks for sharing, Dr. Zhang. Go ahead, Ricky. I would love to give you the chance also to answer for that one. Sure. So I, I loved getting to hear from Dr. Zhang just now about the importance and role of mentors in her career journey and, and particularly her journey into glaucoma. I, I think that I have some similarities in my story. I've had really wonderful mentors over the years, and a lot of those have been glaucoma specialists. So notably in my residency training, Ian Connor is a, you know, an interventional glaucoma guy in Pittsburgh who I had the privilege of getting to watch this transition in his career um, as he went from being a junior faculty to one of the more senior faculty in the, the department and, and certainly glaucoma in the time that I was a resident in Pittsburgh. And it was just so much fun to, you know, really see him come into his own and, and, you know, be trying every new mixed device and tackling new surgeries. I got to watch some of his early Yamane fixation cases where he was teaching himself a new, you know, advanced cataract surgery related technique. And so that, that relationship was one that I think really inspired me to pursue entering the field of glaucoma because I saw how how much innovation there was in the field and how much room there was to learn and tackle new things. I think this era where glaucoma surgeons are becoming some of the most skilled intraocular surgeons and are doing a lot of cataract surgery, I think that's really, that was really exciting to me as a trainee, as someone who loved cataract surgery and who also, like Dr. Zong, really appreciated the chance to develop relationships with patients. And that was something I found in glaucoma was uh, I would go home at the end of the day feeling good about having taken the time to sit with a patient and help them make a difficult decision, have a procedure or surgery that they've been reluctant to have. And that relationship building was something that was valued in glaucoma. And it was really the one place in residency that I felt completely at home in the sense of, you know, there being a lot of variety in the types of surgeries that are performed, as well as having those longitudinal relationships with the patient. I did the MD PhD program at Indiana University. I was actually in Indiana for nine years before I went to Pittsburgh. As a med student, uh, PhD student, and then as a an inter did my intern year as well, and I, I had the opportunity to meet Lou Cantor, who at the time was the department chair, and for decades he's been the head of the glaucoma fellowship here. 
And uh, so I met him as a first year med student throughout my medical school education. He was, he's the department chair. He's coming out and he's spending half of his Saturday volunteering with the med students, teaching us to estimate cup to disc ratios off of abundance photography. And that relationship was one that was really significant to me as a, a medical student. And then I had the privilege of coming back and, and being his fellow. And, and actually, it was the, the last year that he was the fellowship director last year. So he's handed off the torch now to John Lind, who is another phenomenal glaucoma educator, was at WashU for a number of years and, and you know, from Indiana originally and, and came home to, to I a few years ago. And so I, I really have benefited from, I think, some really wonderful mentors. I, I also overlapped with Nils Lowen in Pittsburgh, and, and Dr. Lowen was one of the first people to involve me in, in eye surgery on my very first rotation as the resident in Pittsburgh. So like I said, small world, and it's, it's really great to be on here. And it's a really exciting time in the field of glaucoma. It really is. It really is. And I really, I just want to, you know, kind of Ricky mentioned this already, just, I love how small this world is, you know, how you always know, if you don't know them directly, you always know someone who knows them. And it's just, you know, you end up making some of your best friends in life. And I just, you know, only interview certain, some of my best friends today are co-applicants that I met during residency applications or fellowship applications, and then eventually end up expanding your friend circle. And it's just, it's such a great community. And obviously I think we're biased, but I certainly think that glaucoma is probably the best community in ophthalmology <laughs> because um, the people are just genuinely really passionate, all really nice and passionate about helping each other. And I think it comes from the fact that, you know, our patient population is someone that we do develop lifelong longitudinal relationships with. You know, we, we kind of take on this personal responsibility to ensure that our patients retain the vision that they have for the rest of their lives, ideally. And, uh, you know, we help each other out in that way to share our knowledge, share what we learn, share ideas constantly at meetings or even these platforms. So it's just really wonderful. I, I love those answers. I think uh, there's so much that someone who's in my position, who's looking at ophthalmology, so bigger questions, and then at the same time, finding your passion that way. I think, for example, Ricky, you mentioned like you met one of the people that you actually worked with during fellowship while you were a first year med student. So for example, that's the kind of impact, you know, whatever you're doing right now can be important. And you sometimes at the time don't realize that that's going to happen. And it kind of comes back around to, to catch itself. And I, and I love that. So thanks for sharing those stories. I think there's a, there's a lot to, to draw from. At the same time, I think something that was brought up was how glaucoma has changed so much over the period of time that you guys have been in touch with the field. So let's talk about that a little bit. For example, where glaucoma was maybe 10, 20 years ago and how the recent developments have brought it to where it is to present day. And then... After we discuss this, we can then move on to talk about like what the future holds and, you know, where we can go with that. But at the same time, we should take a moment to reflect like where, where we're coming from in that regard. Yeah, I, I'm going to jump in here if that's okay, Kadagan, because, and I'm going to draw another personal connection because like, like we're saying, it's a small world. So one of my fellowship attendings this past year, her name is Elizabeth Martin. And she actually, before she went to medical school, before she entered glaucoma, she worked as a, an ophthalmic technician with Marie Johnstone. And that's a name that's going to ring a bell for a lot of people in glaucoma right now. Marie Johnstone has been asked to give keynote talks at all the major meetings recently in the last few years, talking about the anatomy of the Schlems Canal and about these inlet and outlet valves that have a pumping mechanism that is involved in aqueous outflow. So, so Marie Johnstone was really a, he was a private practice guy in Seattle, 
tremendous pioneer in glaucoma way ahead of his time decades ago was doing innovative research about aqueous outflow and, you know, elucidating the anatomy and, you know, just really moving the field forward. So I think he was someone who was ahead of his time and is now just being recognized for the tremendous work he's done. And part of that is this, this, this emphasis on minimally invasive surgery. And so it's, it's been really fun past year to hear, you know, Liz Martin talking about how Marie Johnstone was like, you know, advocating for some of these types of canal-based procedures decades ago. And then just really in the last 10 years or so, starting with the eye stent and then progressing to some of these other newer procedures. We have other stenting devices, catheter-based devices. But, you know, canaloplasty was something that predated a lot of these, you know, these devices we have now. And so that actually is something that glaucoma is is rapidly evolving and changing. We have new devices. It seems like every few minutes almost, and someone is coming out with a, a new device with a more efficient or or more or easier to use mechanism, you know, targeting the canal or the outflow system. And I mean, I just think this is really a cool field where you see all these, you know, the basic science and the clinical science end up intersecting and overlapping a lot. And I, I'm really excited to see where things go over the next few years. Thanks for sharing that. I'm taking notes as, as you guys speak. So if you see me look down, that's what I'm doing. Because we do put out some sips of tea, you know, and that's something that Ricky actually started when she was working closely with us. But at the same time, Dr. Zhang, I'm eager to hear what your experience has been and how the field has changed in your time. Yeah, definitely. You, know, you mentioned you know, in the last 10 years, I would actually say, you know, maybe thinking back the last 20 years, because where glaucoma care, at least surgical care was this, we didn't have that many options, right? You know, and we can all talk about the medical care as well, because that's kind of now the surgical and the medical side is also kind of merging together in many ways. And we can talk about that a little bit later as well. But, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, when someone needed glaucoma surgery, when they had refractory glaucoma that was unresponsive to medical and laser therapy, you know, trabeculectomy and tube shunts were kind of the two ways to go, right? And as you know, that's, we still do trabeculectomy and tube shunts today. That's, you know, that's not going anywhere. But certainly filtering surgeries had a lot of complications. Also was very difficult for patients sometimes. Trabeculectomy patients have to have a lot of intensive postoperative follow-up. It's probably also tough on the surgeon as well because, because of the potential risk, potential complications. And so much was dependent on things that were outside of your control right? Patient adherent, patient's episclerosis fibrosis that we really couldn't control very well, other than with the antifibrotics that even then really can't control. So, you know, that aspect, is, it seemed at least compared to, I, I feel fortunate to be a glaucoma specialist today, because thinking back a long time ago that, you know, glaucoma seemed more stressful. And nowadays, you know, we just have this a wide armamentarium of options for our patients that we're able to individualize based, based on the patient's lifestyle, based on their glaucoma disease severity, really on their disease trajectory. It's just really absolutely wonderful. And you can see, like Ricky said, that even in the, every over a 12-month period, you can really see how the microinvasive surgery space is evolving and constantly improving. But what I also find really interesting, and Ricky mentioned that, is, you know, canaloplasty, for example, or viscocanalostomy was something that was around, really around the time of when people were doing trabeculectomies, they were doing an ab external. But we are able to use the knowledge that we have from the giants of the past, you know, who've developed these procedures and then innovate on it to make it less invasive. Now we're doing up internal canaloplasty and viscodilation, right? That's a, a lot less risky with the same benefits as viscocanalostomy and kind of ab external canaloplasty that used to be done. And similar, similarly, goniotomy, 
trabeculotomy, you know, that's been done for a long time in the pediatric population, but we're able to take that knowledge and then advance it in a way that we can now apply in our adult population as well. And it's really made, you know, a tremendous, tremendous change in the way we view glaucoma and the, the way that we can treat glaucoma as well. Now I have many patients who hopefully will never need a blood because we can control it with the new, more innovative techniques. Not to say that the filter surgeries are going anywhere, of course, because unfortunately still have those patients who will need that. But I think that's the beauty of glaucoma is that it, being in 2022 and being a practicing glaucoma specialist is having all the options that we have for the patients. And in some ways that also really gives the patients hope, right? Glaucoma used to be a blinding disease. You know, if we go back, for example, 50 years before we had good antifibrotics, you know, doing a trabeculectomy or back then it was a deep sclerectomy, you know, full thickness penetrating procedure and things like that. It was either your pressure got really low or it didn't work. So, yeah, it was, there's no in between there. And nowadays there is a dial that we can turn it even within the mix space, depending on what the patient needs, we can choose a trabecular bypass stent versus goniotomy, trabeculotomy, or even combining a stent first with viscodilation and goniotomy doing a 360 degree goniotomy versus doing a partial segmental goniotomy. So it's just really wonderful. I, I love that. I think there's a lot of things that you said in there that I resonate with to some degree because, you know, I, I went to med school, for example, back in India. And a lot of the times the patients that we are seeing over there, we don't expect to see them that often in the clinic. And so the follow-up or follow-up rate is not as high. And in glaucoma, for example, my, my first mentor in ophthalmology was actually a glaucoma specialist back home. And she, they would like really struggle because people wouldn't come back and it's hard to follow up on how they're doing. And especially in a primary care setting, they weren't even split fam around. So it would be hard for people to really understand how the surgery was working or whether they needed a revision or whether they need to fine tune it. So that's where really, I think your point where, you know, we have all these options that are that are coming out, I think really empowers the surgeon. And and that makes me excited because I, I have a soft spot for glaucoma in that, you know, I sort of was first introduced to ophthalmology through that. My first project in ophthalmology was related to just taking pictures of people's eyes to see how their eyes were doing because slit lamp cameras were not around. So we used phones, for example, to take pictures just to see if they needed revisions or not. And that is just, just something that makes me excited. So sharing some excitement there. Dr. Singh is texting me back and forth. He keeps saying that it's going to take him a little bit longer, but I think we are having a great session so far. I'm going to uh, have, have him join as soon as possible and just working on that also at the back end at the same time. Just wanted to let you guys know. With that being said, I think this is a perfect opportunity for us to like have a little bit of a segue. We talk about how, you know, the field has changed in that how we today feel empowered and we have a lot more options to dial in, be more personalized as to approaching which patients need that surgery versus don't. So we can talk about maybe the selection. For example, MIGS, even though it's very exciting, what are the correct patient demographics that we should sort of target that toward? And what are some of the new options that are coming out that are more applicable or like more generalizable? Or is there something that is more exciting that's coming up that makes you think like, oh, that option would really work for the more severe patients that I have, for example? Gagne, I think your question is someone's career. You know, that, that first question you ask, you know, how do you individualize a surgery or how you pick based on the patient? Like, what are some patient characteristics that we can use to guide where we go? Because I think there's just still a lot of it we don't know. 
I think, you know, standard for most people, we like to consider because mix, it's microinvasive, but we also understand the potential for IOP lowering may not be as significant as a trabeculectomy. So it, obviously a lot of it depends on the patient's what pressure they need to target IOP on their disease severity, you know, on what's worked for them in the past. If someone's already on five different medications and acetazolamide and the pressure's 28, you know, I, I probably will not go to an eye stent, for example, as their surgical options. I know they're going to need something more. And most likely I will go to a filtering surgery for those patients. My patients who are on, you know, one to three medications, either are well-controlled or, you know, are close to their target pressure or need a target pressure that's in the mid-teens. That's generally someone that I consider a microinvasive procedure for. But I do, for every patient, the first question I ask is, you know, what can I do for them with MIGS? Because ultimately MIGS does not leave any scarring on the conjunctiva, it leaves the conjunctiva intact. So that gives me more options in the future. And I always tell every patient that I recommend surgery for is that, you know, we have a lot of options. We're very lucky in 2022 to have these options. You know, for, for, for you, for example, I would recommend that we try to augment or rejuvenate your natural drainage system with the understanding that, you know, we leave many, many options on the table for the future. Versus if someone I have recommending a tube shunt, you know, I tell them, you know, I, because I don't think your natural drainage system is going to be able to work no matter what we do to it. For example, neovascular glaucoma. You know, I don't think MIGS is anywhere near ready for neovascular glaucoma simply because of the way the pathophysiology. It would be dangerous to do microinvasive glaucoma surgery in someone with MEG. So it, it depends on a lot of things. But I think, that, you know, what, what becomes harder is picking the type of MIGS for the patients that you think are good candidates for MIGS. I think that's one of the areas that I'm certainly very interested in is looking at the surgical outcomes in both a retrospective, but also a prospective way to compare the plethora of choices that we have from, you know, every, it seems like nowadays every company has their own version of a goniotomy, trabeculotomy device and a viscodilation device, right? And there are different techniques to do that. And I think for us as a glaucoma community, what we need to do is figure out, you know, what makes one better than the other for which type of patients. And that's going to take time. It's going to take research, but that's why we're here, right? You know, we're, also, we're a scientist and we're looking to figure out the best thing for our patients. I think that hits the nail on the head. It addresses exactly what, what I was going for. Thank you for, for sharing that, Dr. Jong. Dr. Enzo, do you have thoughts with your relatively recent experience with fellowship? So learning about these new methods, for example, what's the learning curve sort of like like for you know new trainees and what are some things and experiences that you know maybe you are you can share that would you know someone in your shoes who someone in the shoes that you were in while you were training would would want to hear hear about yeah absolutely i think that glaucoma surgery is becoming a lot more accessible to comprehensive ophthalmologists cornea specialists people other anterior segment surgeons uh, with the advent of migs and what i mean by that is that some of these surgeries are, you know, the, the post-operative follow-up is not nearly as involved and some of the surgeries are pretty quick. And I think gonioscopy is becoming more sexy these days and trainees are a lot more motivated to learn to perform gonioscopy and to do it effectively and well. I think that actually a visualization of the anatomy and then the aqueous outflow system has been kind of one of the limiting factors to widespread adoption of MIGS. And, and what I mean by that is just that the, you know, that it, it's not always easy to see the TM. The pigmentation may vary from one patient to the next. One of the things that I was learning about as a senior resident and someone entering glaucoma fellowship was how do we identify the TM? How do we identify the location, say, of the collector channels and outflow system? And there are ways to do that. So you can use tripan blue and that will stain the TM. So for someone who is just learning to identify the anatomy, 
and try to do some of their early procedures. I think that's a very useful technique. Other things you can do if you lower the hydrocular pressure a little bit, you'll see some reflux of blood into the Schlem's canal and that will label the, the you know, that the trabeculum work and Schlem's canal as well so that you can direct your stent or your catheter in the right location. So I think those are a couple things that I would recommend people try. And I really think visualization is key here, making sure you've been on best view with your, um, your gonioscopy lens, making sure that you are recognizing the correct anatomy when you're attempting these procedures. And then things like the you know, ISTEN and Hydrus and then the KBB, those are probably good early procedures for people to learn. I, I think that you know, some of the visco, you know, canaloplasty procedures, the, the Omni and the eye track. I, I think those are a little bit, you, you know, I, I would probably start try those after maybe mastering one of the stents or KDB, something that's a little bit more limited where you're doing everything under direct visualization. And I, I just noticed that, well, it looks like Pulsing is trying to join us. So I'm not sure if we're, we're up and running yet, but there yeah. was one other question. Yeah, he, he, just, he just hopped off uh, and he's back in. Let me... <laughs> Okay. Let me, let me um, talk just a little, Gagan, while you're getting him set up, I'm going to talk just a little bit about that other question, or maybe we can ask Dr. Singh to jump in. Yeah. Uh, let me, let me quickly just throw in an introduction. Hey, Dr. Singh, can you hear, hear us? I can. What's happening, everybody? Hey, welcome. Thanks for making it. I am sorry that your morning was, you know, ruined by that tire blowout or... Man, that's the thing with life. You just got to roll with it. That's a lesson. My first lesson to everybody out there. You just never know what's going to happen in a day, but you got to go with it and move forward. Thanks for, for sharing that. So Dr. Paul Singh is a Wisconsin native and a president of the eye centers of Rexine and Kenoshawa. I'm, I'm, I may not Kenosha. think that correct. That's Kenosha. Awesome. Kenosha's good. Close enough. Close enough. <laughs> <laughs> he was a chief president when he completed his residency at Cook County in the Division of Ophthalmology and his internship at Michael Reese Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. So a great mentor, teacher, and certainly someone who I have been fortunate to connect with in meetings and just having your mentorship, Dr. Singh. Thanks for everything and being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm going right. to comment that actually I think the timing of Dr. Singh getting on with us is just perfect because one of the topics that we were just discussing is selection of like which MIGS procedure for which patient. And I, I know Dr. Singh, you've been one of the people that I look to to guide some of these conversations, you know, that these new ideas with combining different MIGS procedures and what to do when, how do you pick the best MIGS procedure or combination procedures for the patient in front of you? So I, I think you're probably the right person to jump in. Well, first of all, I'm so proud of how, all the things you've done and, and just thank you for letting me help you out in any way I can. But uh, it is truly an honor to be able to mentor all the new young surgeons out there who are kicking some butt and taking us all to the next level, which is really cool. <laughs> so it's a, it's a great feeling to see you guys do great. Yeah, you know, it's an exciting time and I, I missed a lot of what you guys have talked about. So if I'm jumping in and if I'm repeating a lot of what you said, I apologize. But at the end of the day, the paradigm shift for me has been this appreciation for, we just don't know kind of who's going to get worse and when. And I, I, being out of fellowship now over 15, 18 years now, I've seen people progress. I remember joining my dad's practice the first literally like year of my dad's practice, I joined it. My dad's you know, Indian guy, had a strong Indian accent and Indians love tea. I remember him sitting me down one day and saying, son, tell me how is love going? What doing? I said, dad, it's so easy. No one's getting worse. It's awesome. And then like five years goes by and my dad sits me down and it's like, let's have a good cup of tea. And all of a sudden, like, he's like, how is glaucoma? And i like, it sucks, dad, because everybody was getting worse on me. And, and you realize how we get fooled in glaucoma. And, and so the understanding, the appreciation for being aggressive as early as possible and using these new technologies, intervention, 
to allow ourselves to appreciate not only being aggressive with IOP control, but understanding the importance of compliance, patient quality of life, and, and, and that realm. Because we now have such good data out there. For so many years, we did not have good data to support that quality of life, compliance truly equals better control of glaucoma and less progression over time compared to, say, topical drops. We had anecdotal studies and we had some kind of hodgepodge studies out there. But now we have the SLT Life Trial, Horizon Trial, and others that are showing us that not only do we help improve the ability for people to get off of drops, but with that, we improve quality of life. And, you know, I was part of a study that was published last year with the ISET showing us, looking at OSDI scores, looking at VFQ25 questionnaires, showing us compared to stenting versus cataracts alone, we find that you have significant improvement in, in quality of life, dry eye scores, and less number of medications. So long story short, for me, it's this appreciation for not being complacent, not waiting till it's obvious to intervene. And now giving us all these options that we have, right? We have whether it's stenting, whether it's canal dilation, cutting procedures, and then as you, Nikki mentioned, combining these different technologies and mechanisms of action allow us to really tailor, truly tailor our treatment options to the patient, depending on severity, how, how old they are, age, progression, and target pressures, right? So we take all those into consideration and say, okay, based upon how old this person is, where I want the target pressure to be, how many number of medications are on and where they're starting from, that's how I'll decide, okay, what do I have to do for this patient? And so, for instance, if I have a patient who has early glaucoma, a younger patient who's phacic, I might just do a canal dilation. And my, my goal for that, my definition of success sometimes is not additional IOP reduction. It might be, let me just get the patient off a drop. Even one drop of reduction for a patient can help cost side effects and compliance issues over time. It can save the office so much time on the post, just follow-up visits. And so I have a patient who's on one or two meds, maybe had an SLT, primary SLT already, maybe had drug delivery and they're still on one or two meds or having a hard time. Even if they're mild or pre-parametric, my perspective is why am I keeping them on drops? We do know that drops over time will cause tachyphylaxis, MGD, dry eye issues and compliance sucks with drops. So if I can get them off it safely, I'll do a canaloplasty. Eye track catheter, Omni, we have Streamline, we have all these devices that allow us the opportunity to intervene in a safe way, still maintain healthy conjunctiva to go back and do a future stent or a cutting procedure later on, or let's say an excisional goniotomy. And so that's an earlier. Now, if I have more of a moderate patient, right, where I want to maybe I'll do a little bit of an otomy and then also do viscodilation 360 to allow, allow myself still to have some TM later on, but be more aggressive with maybe a little more cutting if I have to. And even if it's a fake patient who's closely younger, but more moderate on multiple meds. And so I think for us, it's, I mean, me personally, it's about understanding where I want to go and how many drops they're on. If I want to get them off drops, I'll combine a lot, of these, a lot of these techniques and technologies together. If they're on one or two meds, I might just do one alone, let's say a stent alone or viscodilation alone as well. So it's not about one what's right or wrong and not being afraid to combine. It's not about financial benefit. It's about what's making sense for the patient. Last thing I'll say is we don't know where the resistance to outflow is preoperatively. You may have said this, Nikki, I may have missed it, but... In general, you're, you're sitting there with your gonio prism and you have that patient right in front of you. And you're like, yeah, man, angle's open, sweet. TM's good, I can see it really well. No PAS, no NVA, that's all we got. We don't know, is it the resistance to the TM? Is the Schlem's canal? Is the distal channels, are they collapsed or atrophied? We just don't know. And so being able to hedge our bets and doing a combination of, let's say, flushing the system out with some viscodilation or doing a little otomy and then putting a stent for long-term control, it makes sense from a mechanism of action. So. 
even if you think, is it really worth it? What we have found in our practice is the medication burden reduction is greater when I have combined viscodilation with cutting slash or stenting compared to doing stenting alone, let's say, with cataract surgery. And so that's why for me, if I have someone on a number of medications, like three or four meds, I'll combine. If they're on one or two meds, I'll do a standalone or I'll do to see stent alone or let's say a cutting procedure alone. I won't combine all these mechanisms. So anyway, long, long, long story. But no, I, think, I think that's a nice little capsule of, you know, your strategies and your preferred patterns and do how things are proceeding. And I'd love to hear your, your thoughts, Dr. Singh, on that. I think a lot of the young people who would listen to this and would have a question that, that's going to be on their minds is, how did Dr. Singh get to doing what he's doing? Like, why is he doing glaucoma surgery? <laughs> so that, I want to I wanna quickly get a little bit of that as well. Like, how did you, you know, end up here, Dr. Singh? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I think it had to do with, so first of all, ophthalmology in general. And, you know, I, I think being open to new technology was something I learned from my dad. So what, as I mentioned earlier, I joined my dad's practice many years ago after my fellowship out of Duke. And I want to stay at Duke with David Epstein who was my chairman. And I love teaching. I love being with fellows and residents, which is so much fun, right? Having that camaraderie. But my dad, when I told him I want to say it, Duke, he like quickly did the whole Indian slap over the phone. But now it was like, you will come home now. I'm like, okay, dad, I'm coming. But he was the best thing I ever did because my dad, and not to show off for my dad, but give him some props. He was the first in Wisconsin back in the 70s with a lens implant in the eye. And he had people trying to get his license taken away. He had to get the implant society to come to defend him, actually, because it was blasphemy. First to do radiocaritotomy, first to do PRK back in the 80s. So a lot of firsts. And, and I remember him telling me, like, look, Paul, if you believe in something, if you think it's the right thing to do and you have enough understanding of the rationale and you have enough data, it doesn't matter what people think. You've got to go for it. You cannot be complacent. Because our job and our goal as a doctor is not just to do whatever is taught to us, it's, it's about the patient and what's benefiting the patient. And we, we can do more and we can't, we have to progress. We can't focus so much of our attention on past, but focus on what can we do better in the future. And, and that was something my dad taught me. So when I got into fellowship or residency rather at Cook County, you know, we had so many glaucoma patients that were just getting worse and worse and worse on us. And, you know, I would hear these patients come in saying, yeah, doc, I can't take this Tim Law. And back then I'm talking, I'm old now, guys. We barely had PGA. It just came on the market my third year. So it was all, Pit Timolol, it was all like CAIs. And, you know, of course, we even had Pilo back then, right? And so we didn't have a lot of options, but people were getting worse on us. And I was like, this really sucks. And so I did a trap, did a few traps, and I thought there's got to be a better way. And so I was like, I'm going to go into this field because I know there's a chance that we could do better for these patients. And it sounds cheesy, but that was really the reason why, because there was so much going on with PRK and LASIK at that time. Cataract surgery was already like kind of aggressively advancing, but glaucoma was still pretty stable and kind of sterile. It was very, really not a lot of advances were going on, but I could see that there was a push even at that time, back in 2000, where people were like, look, we got to do better. We, there's something better than just adding a fifth drop and diamox to a patient and expect them to stay stable. So when I got a chance to look at fellowships, I looked at Duke because they had a lot of, not only uh, trials and studies, but they had a variety of different attendings who had a different perception and a different focus. You know, someone who was doing mostly student exfoliation. Someone was doing, you know, World Health Organization things. We had people who were doing a lot of surgery. So I had a lot of exposure to different facets of optimal specifically. And so for me, it was that need to do more and that we had a, a need to help our patients better address their quality of life and get their controlled glaucoma, better control rather. 
that was one of the reasons why I chose glaucoma because I knew there was a chance that we could do more for these patients that was already being done. So it's a combination of my father and my experience at Cook County, Mildred Olivier and others who were there at the time, seeing how many people were getting worse and saying, I can't let this happen. This is ridiculous that we're glaucoma surgeons that were barely hanging onto a small central island and lucky if they don't snuff out. That was how bad it was. And we were waiting to do surgery for so long that I knew there was gonna be a time where we could do surgery earlier. And that's kind of where we are today, which is why it's so fulfilling to see all these young surgeons saying, yeah, man, let's do surgery. Is that one drop? Let's do a mix. And it's just great to see from where we came from in 2000 to now. And it's a, it's a big benefit to a lot of patients and surgeons. Great. 100%. No, I, I love the story there, Dr. Singh. I'm sure a lot of our audiences are going to resonate with that. Thank you for, for sharing the journey that you've had. I think I, I'm going to circle back to the topic that was that we were discussing before Dr. Singh just kind of came in. And I, I feel you were in Dr. Singh as well. Essentially, we were just discussing how, you know, the trainee aspect of it and how the trainee and the trainer or the, or the surgeon or the mentor, how, the, what their perspectives are with regards to MIGS. And Dr. Enzer was just sharing her, her experience with how, you know, learning MIGS has been and what the graduated transition there needs to be. But I wanted to give Dr. Jong a chance as well to share her experience as a mentor. What's your experience been, Dr. Jong, as to training the next generation with MIGS and trabeclectomy because there's been some discussion of, oh, trabeclectomy is dying. Trabeclectomy is a dying art or something like that. So what's your position on that? Yeah, thanks, Gagan. Yeah, no, I think Ricky hit it, hit the nail on the head. It's just visualization for MIGS is the most important, especially for a beginning surgeon. So gonioscopy, both in the clinic, gonioscopy, indirect gonioscopy, but also direct gonioscopy on the table is something that is you have to master because without seeing what you're doing, that would be dangerous, right? So you want to have a good visualization of your landmarks, of the trabecular mesh, of knowing where you are. So teaching residents, you know, what I always start, residents and fellows will always start off just having them practice gonioscopy on the tables. I tell them, you know, every cataract patient they do, turn their heads at the end of the case, put a little viscoelastic on the cornea, put the gonioprism on there, just visualize and practice. And nowadays we're also lucky we have gonioprisms where the residents don't have to hold it with their non-dominant hand anymore. But I always require my fellow to hold it because I think it's just, you know, one's because you need to do that for some procedures, such as the eye track going GAT procedure, because some of the, uh, some of the disposable going prisms don't necessarily work very well, depending on uh, when you have to change your position of your paracentesis. But you know, practicing getting, getting the habit of knowing how to do proper gonioscopy is probably one of the most important things that trainees need to do before they proceed to MIGS. And then just really practice, you know. Watch the surgical videos, watch your attendees, watch your mentors. And then I always start, like Ricky said, you know, I think it's good to start with the eye stent or KDB as the first step into MIGS because those are the easier procedures. And as you become more proficient in the angle, then moving on to Omni or GAT because those are slightly more difficult. Although, you know, once you're comfortable in the angle, those procedures, especially glaucoma surgeons, they become translatable and the, the, the same skill set is used. Um, so, you know, I, I, I have to say that, you know, I learn more from working with my residents and fellows than I ever thought I would, because it's just, they, you know, everybody has a different innovative way of thinking about things and approaching things. And they really make me think about how I do things so that I can explain. Because I think it's, it's easy to do it, but to teach it is definitely more difficult. And it's been a very humbling experience as well. But I think you know, knowing how to do your proper steps of gonioscopy is going to be your first step to success. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing that, Dr. John. Dr. Singh, I know you also lead those discussions where you are training the new surgeons who ha haven't had experience maybe in MIGS in the past, or these are tr residents or trainees who come and shadow with you. 
what's your experience been in getting people up to speed for, for MIGS? Yeah, no, I think a well said earlier, I mean, I think it has so to echo everyone's comments. It's about the view and, and, and not trying to hurry to get that good view. And, and I think it's, it's this idea of understanding what is a good view. And we talk about it all the time, but what does it mean to have an on fast view, to have that trabecular metric really kind of facing you as perpendicular as possible? Because it's, it, as, as you met, as the guys mentioned earlier, the skill set is the same pretty much for almost all these big devices, whether you do a Hydrus or an Omni or a KDB or iStent or iTrack even. Once you get the good view and you, you, you're used to having your hand in the angle somewhere, it becomes muscle memory. It's like doing, you know, a different IOL. Yeah, there you have some nuance, but you can do a different IOL. You can use this a hand, take a hand piece. It's the same principle, right? And so to me, it's about the view, getting comfortable in the angle and not hurrying that view. Understanding how much the head to tilt, how much the scope to tilt, how much viscoelastic in the, in the eye and holding that gonia prism, whether it's a hands-free or a DBX lens or not, it doesn't matter. The point is getting that good view is probably key. Number two is that, as, as you mentioned earlier, Dachan, if you have patients who are having cataracts or it's a great time to just tilt the head, take a Sinsky, just kind of fiddle around in the angle a little bit, just kind of pretend like you're near the TF and have identify what does the TF look like. There's different color TFs, right? There's different pigmentation TMs, different angle anatomy, understanding all those nuances, just getting used to that comfort level being in that air in that space. Once you feel comfortable, after doing that first few things, you start to appreciate it is very similar in terms of the muscle memory with devices. So I think I can't overemphasize that all three of us have emphasized that, but the, the view is the key and also feeling comfortable working in that space in general. And then knowing it's okay to not get it right the first time. And that's something too, you know, you see all these videos online, myself, others, videos of like how smooth and how quick it is. It like goes, goes in like, but we always joke around how quick and efficient, but there's going to be moments for even myself, I've done thousands of MIGs that, yeah, there's a tough anatomy there. I have a high myo where there's post cataract removal, the chamber's so deep, the anatomy's all messed up. And now I'm, I'm trying to get that hydrus or that omni in there. It's tough sometimes. So it's okay to have to stop, restart, refill the anterior chamber, refill the eye to get a good view again and do it a few times. Safety is key. Worst case scenario, you come out and you don't do anything. It's okay to tell a patient, you know what? That stent didn't want to fit in very well. I decided to hold off. I'll put you back on drops if you have to. And so I think getting comfortable with the idea that it's okay if you can't get it in or you can't get what you want to do, just don't hurt the patient. And on the front end, I tell patients all the time, this makes procedure I'm doing for you may be enough to get you off of medications, may get you that target range of what I get you. It may not. It's okay if we have to put you on drops. So we have other surgical options in the future. This is a journey. And my job is to find out what's the best procedure for you with the safest way to get you to a level that's good but we may need something different later on. And so that's okay. So I think it's that whole co a comprehensive approach and not being too afraid of not getting it perfect. So as it's safe, keep going and keep trying. 100%. Wow. So I'm, I'm happy to hear your thoughts there, Dr. Singh, as well. I think uh, one of the common themes that I, that I caught on from all three of your guys' journeys and, and your answers is that communication seems to be like a really important part, especially with the longitudinal, you know, patient experiences that you are, you're building in your career as a glaucoma specialist, but at the same time, managing those expectations correctly, as, as was mentioned just recently, I think that's something that trainees should, can probably, probably work on even ahead of time before they are in, in those shows. But I wanted to hear your opinions and thoughts on, you know, what is something that trainees can, can do to 
get up to speed and get ready for a career in glaucoma. And if you could go back in time, you know, what, what is something that you would tell yourself? Like, hey, do this or do that differently than, than what it ended up being. I'm going to jump in here, Gagan, and, and then start us off with an answer to this question. And maybe this answer will be a little bit untraditional and, and out of the box. But I think humility is especially important for someone wanting, wanting to enter glaucoma. And I say that because we've, we've, we've heard Dr. Singh and Dr. Zhang comment about how things don't always go as we expect them to with a glaucoma patient. We don't know what the status is of the distal outflow system. We don't know a lot of things that influence how our patients might respond with their scarring and fibrotic response will be. If we knew which surgery was going to be successful when we were picking it, we'd pick the right surgery every single time. And it can be really difficult walking through with patients, making these decisions, not knowing those answers and realizing that some of those patients were going to choose a surgery where we've encouraged them to pick that surgery or where we have talked through all the options and helped them navigate that and they make a decision. And that surgery isn't going to work. And that patient is going to either have a complication or have a surgery fail. And we're going to go on to perform sometimes three, four surgeries on this patient within a year. And that can be really difficult for patients having to walk through that, having us, you know, they, they don't know everything about ophthalmology and we don't know everything about ophthalmology. I learn new things from my patients all the time. And I, I really think that a beyond communication skills, which is huge in glaucoma, I think that that humble attitude of, of coming to the patient and saying, you know, I'm so sorry you're going through this and I'm going to be with you every step of the way. And, you know, we're, we're going to walk through this together. That was one of the most difficult experiences or parts of my, my experience as a glaucoma fellow, realizing that we did this to the patient. We did a trabeculectomy and now this patient has, whether it's, you know, blurred vision from hypotony, maculopathy, or choroidal infusions that haven't gone away, or, or you know, they develop a suprachoroidal hemorrhage, or, or really high astigmatism with, with anisotropia that is really interfering with their ability to see and function. There, there are things that are going to happen to our patients, and we recommend surgeries, and we, we make these decisions with them. And we think that we're doing the right thing. And sometimes that means that they walk through some of the most difficult months of their life where they're wondering if they're ever going to see again. And so I, I really would emphasize developing good communication skills, but also coming with a humble attitude and realizing that we always have things to learn from each other as glaucoma specialists. And we always have things to learn from our patients. And I think if you come to your patients with that attitude, then they will, you know, they respond well to that and they, uh, the trust, the level of trust in the glaucoma specialist is, is hugely important. And, and these are patients that, you know, you, you live with these patients for decades. So I, I think that and being one of the, I've seen that be one of the hardest things for glaucoma specialists who are educators, you know, that, that level of trust, having to hand off things to a trainee, knowing that 20 years from now, whatever happens with that surgery, you know, that, that glaucoma attending is going to feel responsible for, for letting that trainee participate in whatever the outcome was. I think, Ricky, that's really well said. I think, you know, like everybody said, communication is so important and especially important in a longitudinal specialty like glaucoma. And the way I think about it is for my patients, it's not, it's not their journey, it's our journey. You know, I always communicate that with them, that it's a journey that we take together and it's not, it's very important for them to trust us, but it's also important for us to trust them. Because if you feel like, you know, you, you don't think your patients are complying, if you don't think they can do, I mean, that's going to change the way we think about their management. So kind of 
a two-way street of trust is also incredibly important. And just for them upfront to understand the things that could happen on all their options. That's why I was, every patient I sign up for surgery, whether I recommend MIGS or I recommend a tube or a trachelectomy, I always give them all the options. It takes a little bit longer, but I find that patients really respond to understanding all the options and why I'm recommending one option or the other. And that's especially helpful if, you know, in the patients that I, we do MIGS and it does not work or they develop a complication, then they really understand why we have to move on to that second or third procedure, like Ricky said. Because unfortunately, we do have those patients where things go differently than we wanted to. And then we even sometimes than we expect. I and mean, I think one of the things that Dr. Singer mentioned earlier, that's the most important thing of being a MIGS surgeon is also just knowing when not to do MIGS, know, knowing when not to do the procedure. And one of the best examples I had actually earlier this week, so I was stacking a resident, it was a combined phaco omni, but the phaco took longer than expected. The lens was denser than expected. And of course, the cornea became more and more hazy as the case went on. And so by the time they finished the phaco part, the cornea was extremely hazy and they wanted to continue to MIGS. And I said, you know, it'll happen to you. Right. Don't do this patient any harm. If you don't have a view, don't do it. You know, it's okay to say, we're just going to do the cataract surgery today and we'll come back later on to do your glaucoma surgery because that's what's best for the patient. That's what's safest for the patient. And I think that's really important, whether it's for trainees or for new surgeons or seasoned surgeons to be able to know that difference and knowing when to. Wow. What, what awesome comments, man. You guys are awesome. This is great. I've learned so much. I'm just going to dovetail off what you both said. I think that, you know, it's about expectation building. It is a journey, like I mentioned. I really believe that, that we are on this journey. Is if you feel honored and privileged to take care of a patient, then you will do everything you can to empathize with them. Because it is the, wor the worst feeling I ever had was I lost an eye to glaucoma surgery my first time. It was like obviously maybe a couple years after I came out of fellowship. And it killed me. I was crying inside. It's like, how? oh my God, I caused someone to go blind. And you feel horrible. But what I learned was in that moment was when I was crying in front of the patient and I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I, I'm here for you. What can I, you know, what can I do for you? I, what, I, what else? Let, let me know. The patient said, doc, you did the best you could. You know, this is what happens in life, right? And, you know, the patient, he was so understanding. I couldn't believe it. I, I was like, what, you be mad at me kind of thing? And it wasn't my fault. It just it happened. Of course, things happen in glaucoma. But, but it was that first realization that if you really empathize and you really are feeling the pain that they're feeling, then they, uh, they can sense it. They know if you really care about them. And, you know, if you look at, not to get too lawyer like you guys, but if you look at the lawsuits that go out there in the world, it's not because the surgeon is always 100% perfect. None of us are. But it was the surgeons who didn't communicate, didn't empathize, didn't say, I'm here for you. We're on this journey together. It's not me versus you. It's us together. That philosophy, as you guys mentioned earlier, is so important not just to protect yourself, but just to also get high patient satisfaction, regardless of the outcome. You cannot control every outcome. And I tell a patient, I'll do everything I can do the best surgeon I can. I can guarantee you I'll do the best I can, but I can't guarantee you the outcome. And, and then that philosophy is so important. And in and, and going back even a step further an expectation building, we talk about MIGS, we talk about any surgery, the expectation building is so important. Even at MIGS, what are you trying to achieve, right? And some people, the pressures are 14 on two meds. My goal is not to get the pressures lower. My goal is to get them off a of medication. So my goal may be different for one person, but another person with pressure of 35 on four meds, they may still be on four meds, but if I can get them on to 15, that's success. So your definition of success for any procedure, whether it's banks or even sta a standard surgery, traditional, is going to be different for every patient. And I kind of help guide the patient to understand what I'm trying to achieve for them. It's okay to be back on that. So it's okay for pressure goes up a couple of points, but you're off that medication. And so I think that really helps set the stage. And then again, that discussion on you're on a long-term journey with me. 
And I'm going to do different things along that journey and start with this, but we may have to do something different as, as, as time goes on. If we don't, even better. But I think that is really the key. So well said to both of you. I think just having the empathy, having the appreciation and having the humble, being humble about being able to give the opportunity to take care of patients. Every time I go to the operating room, I, I promise you this much, I am so in awe of the fact that these patients are letting me cut their eye open. I'm like, really? Holy cow. I'm a dumbass. Why are you letting me do this? You know what I mean? Like, I remember, I was like, you know, it's like, you're letting me cut your eye open, but thank you. And, and I, I really believe that every time I go into surgery, and I think that's what helps you feel comfortable doing the best you can. Wow. Yeah. No, I, I love the, the discussion that has unfolded here. I am I'm grateful that, you know, we could participate today. We are a little bit over one. I want to make sure that everyone's okay with staying for a few minutes and we, we can wrap up with some questions that are in the chat. Also, Catherine has a question she wants to bring up. Yeah. So I just want to get a, a nod from everyone if we can do that or otherwise we are okay to also wrap here. I could, I could stay. I was late anyway, so I'll stay. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah, I can stay for a few minutes. Thank you. How about you, Ricky? You're okay as well? Give me a thumbs up if you are. You're muted. Yes, yes, absolutely. Right. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So, Catherine, if you're still with us, please go ahead and go for that question. That was a great question in there. Hi, everybody. So we're learning about MIGs and how the management plan really needs to be tailored for each individual patient. I was, I'm a non-clinician and I was recently approached with this question from someone outside of the opto community that I'd like to pose to our panelists here regarding intraocular cosmetic surgery. So could you tell us from a glaucoma specialist perspective and touch on the significance of, you know, setting the expectations regarding the, the complications or the management of the trabecular meshwork with regards to intraocular cosmetic iris color change procedures? Like, what would your concerns be for complications following iris implants, pigment dispersion syndrome from keratopigmentation or iris lightening by femtolaser, for example? And one of the other questions that I was asked was, what does the angle attack feel like? And are there recommendations from the AAO or the glaucoma governing bodies regarding this? Loaded question, but feel free to take it piecemeal if you like. Well, I mean, I, I've had a few patients who've had it overseas, the artificial iris for, for cosmetic purposes. And I've, I've seen a few significant pigmentary dispersion syndrome, UG type syndrome, where there's eczema and some pigmentary issues as well, and some pressure spikes. So I'm, I'm not a big fan of foreign body left in the eye like that. And so I, I think that that is something I would, I would personally not ever get involved in just because of the fact that there's potential for those issues that happen. I, I know of some of people doing the, like for a company called Stroma, doing the iris pigmentation changes with a laser. That tends to, to, to be a little bit safer from my knowledge and from the data I've seen on that. So if, there, if there's any, ever going to be a kind of procedure that I'd be comfortable considering doing, that would be the laser option. Just because you don't have a foreign body left in the eye that could cause potential long-term future issues. So that's kind of my perception on that. Yeah, I would echo that. Unfortunately, the um, the only iris cosmetic iris artificial iris implants I've seen are the ones that had the complications. So obviously I'm biased, but it certainly can cause, like Dr. Singh said, significant iris pigment dispersion and as well as hyphemas and secondary glaucoma as well. So I, I definitely would not recommend that. It's also not FDA approved in the United States. So certainly we would not do that either here. I know that, you know, there are, are compassionate use of artificial irises, certain types for, for reasons, for functional reasons, for someone who had a traumatic iris injury and things like that. But even those have seen significant complications as well. So, you know, if someone has heterochromia and they really want an iris change, 
you know, there are other options. The laser, like you guys mentioned, is one option, although there is some pigment dispersion associated with that as well, depending on the level of energy that's required to treat. And obviously there are also cosmetic contact lenses when sit appropriately and safely by an ophthalmologist or optometrist, that may be a safer option that, that they remove at the end of the day. That, that's certainly something that I would go with more than, than intraocular implants. Yeah, I did want to jump in for just a second here and talk a little bit about artificial iris. So we have exactly one FDA approved device in the US. It's the human optics artificial iris implant. And so that's something that underwent FDA clinical trials. Mike Snyder in Cincinnati was the was the lead on that. And so that is something that it performed in the setting of congenital aniridia or traumatic aniridia for patients who are experiencing debilitating glare symptoms. And, and, and really that's, that's the only FDA approved device we have right now for, for iris, you know, for, for, for patients who have missing iris tissue and, and need 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 something for that. But those, those procedures are, you know, they're relatively rare. There are there, there are surgeons who are very experienced with that and, and do those cases, but those, I, I think in general, a lot of the cosmetic iris implants, these are patients who've gone to other, other countries to have them put in. And uh, I, I would very much caution patients about that because I, like, you know, like the, the other two glaucoma specialists on today, have, have really only heard the, the horror stories. And, but I, I do think that there's a role for you know, for iris work. And that, that's something that I'm, I'm interested in learning and getting into doing later in my career. Wonderful. I, I think, Catherine, you had a second part of the question also, if you want to repeat that. No, that was, that was it, actually. That's great. Maybe perhaps if you could just chime in really quick, what you hear from your patients who are getting iris angle attacks, what are some of the symptoms that you, you hear from them frequently? So I'm presuming that's like a angle closure attack, but I might be misinterpreting that. So, you know, as someone who, you know, I assume she's, you're asking about an acute angle closure attack, which is can be a devastating, permanently blinding condition if not caught or in a timely fashion and treated. So generally those patients have sudden eye pain or even just headaches, severe headaches on that affected side. They're going to have blurred vision. They may report halos, glare problems. And then it actually sometimes manifests atypically. So some people have a headache, they, they don't attribute that to the eye, then develop nausea and all vomiting. So we've all heard horror stories of someone misdiagnosed as gastroenteritis or appendicitis because they're vomiting and having a headache, but really they're actually having an acute angle closure attack. And, you know, if someone gets a regular eye exam, generally an ophthalmologist will look at their eye. And if someone is at risk for angle closure, that's something we always communicate to the patients. If someone had a history of an angle closure attack in one eye, for example, then we generally advise doing a prophylactic procedure in the other eye. Certain patients are a higher risk, patients who are farsighted because their eyes tend to be a little shorter, but there are a variety of different risk factors that go into that. But if someone starts having acute, a sudden onset of eye pain or pain headache around the eye with decreased vision, then they really need to seek eye and ophthalmic care immediately. Thanks for addressing that. I think we have mostly talked about all the themes that I wanted to cover today. Just and on an outgoing note to this, I would love to hear what is it about the future of MIGS or glaucoma that excites you? Are there some news that you know about that a commoner wouldn't know? For example, someone like me who doesn't know about glaucoma that much. Are there some things that particularly are exciting for you? So I was talking about earlier how the world of medical and surgical therapy is merging in some ways. And I think something exciting that's coming down, that's already, you know, we're using is kind of the slow release, sustained release medications. 
that maybe we can confine with surgery. I mean, there's still a lot of things. There's the company that makes some of the trabecular bypass stents have a medic. And I think Dr. Singh actually was part of the trial called the IDOS that actually you have a prostaglandin analog that's going to get slowly eluded in the anterior chamber. We have a slow release bimatoprost implant. They're also punctal plug slow release medications. There's a some conjunctival implants as well as the fornix ring. So those are the things that I'm really excited about because like we talked about throughout the hour here, you know, Patient compliance is huge in glaucoma. And if we can eliminate that, it will make the outcomes better and also improve patients' quality of life. So that's definitely something that I'm excited about. And other things that, you know, there's constantly new surgical techniques and procedures coming down the pipeline as well. And, you know, just, just like Ricky mentioned, you know, understanding the difference between the two, between different procedures and ultimately, hopefully for us to figure out what procedure works best for what type of patient is also going to be something that's going to be, I think, at the forefront of glaucoma. Yeah, I'm going to chime in really quickly. So, and, and just add one, one small thing. So, and that is, I think there's some really interesting and cool innovation with tube shunt procedures. So historically, trabeculectomy surgery has been the only titratable surgery that we have in glaucoma. And there's actually a procedure that's being used in Europe right now called the iWatch. And, you know, I, I have some friends who've had the privilege of being in Toronto in, in the last year or two that, that have had some early experience with that device. But the idea is that thinking about tube shunts, one of the one of the considerations is that non-valve tube shunts, while they have more complications and risk of hypotony, they result in a lower long-term intraocular pressure. So if you could have a tube shunt that somehow functions as a valve tube shunt in the early post-operative period in order to prevent hypotony-related complications early on, but then later is open and it doesn't have a valve, like that, that could be really interesting. And so as a fellow in Indiana this past year, Andrew told me he was involved in some research during his career with soluble valves where you would have a valve tube shunt and you'd have a valve that later just dissolves and goes away. And I don't think that ever made it to, to market, but there, there were some engineers at Purdue working on that and in collaboration with glaucoma specialists. And then the iWatch, it's a device that attaches to the tube just before it enters the anterior chamber and has a magnet, basically an ovoid magnet that's eccentrically positioned. So you take this device and turn the magnet so it'll compress tubing within that, the casing of the device to a different degree. So you can actually adjust the amount of flow through the tube in the early post-operative period at every visit to adjust and control the IOP so that early on you have the more resistance to flow and later on you can just completely open that tubing and, and the valve, you know, that valve mechanism that is, is not there. And then you just basically attach this to any non-valve tube shunt. You can use it with, you know, bar valve or clear path. And so, or they have actually the iWatch, they have corresponding non-valve tube shunts. That's kind of a cool thought. And I think there are other people working on, on similar devices. I, I, I heard someone talk at AGS to some of the young glaucoma specialists about a patent he was working on with a, a similar device to the iWatch where you have a ball valve built into the tube shunt itself and, and using a magnet to non-invasively move that, that ball out of the, the valve mechanism later on. So I, I think these are really, you know, some really interesting and exciting things. The idea that we'll have safer devices that are titratable, like a trabeculectomy, but with diminished risk of hypotony-related complications that we see so often with trabeculectomy and non-valve tube shunts, which for, for a lot of glaucoma specialists were kind of the workhorse surgeries in the past. As we talk about options, right? So that's 
That's great. I think that's remarkably similar to an intracranial shunt that you can program later with a magnet. So I'm I'm glad that we we have some of that in, in ophthalmology also. Go ahead, Dr. Thayer. Sorry to keep you. No, not at all. No, it was great stuff. Thank you for I me. Mean, I loved hearing from, from both of these guys about new options that are coming down pike. I would just say, first of all, in general, I think we are in a renaissance and we just at the beginning of the renaissance in glaucoma from diagnostics to therapeutics, as well as to monitoring in general. You know, we look at things like there's new products that are, that are being worked on. Like good friends of mine at Duke are working on products, looking at understanding where the resistance to outflow is preoperatively. As Dr. Zhang mentioned, you know, we don't know where the resistance to outflow is. And, and, and Ricky mentioned too, you know, is it, is it collector channels atrophied? So what, what's your canal dilating procedure work at all? And we now are looking at devices that with a non-invasive way can actually tell you where the resistance to outflow is preoperatively. So giving us a better understanding of mechanism of, of pathology, of anatomy is really going to help us get better tailor whatever device that we come up with to each each of our patients. And so I think there's a lot of yeah, that's exciting. I think it's exciting times with just AI. I think looking at AI and how we're using AI now, even but even in the future, be able to give us better algorithms of progression analyses, being able to take all these different diagnostic tools, whether it's OCT, whether it's visual fields, whether it's virtual reality visual fields, whether it's 24-hour IOP, and be able to really give us better predictive values, understanding which patients are more likely to progress more rapidly. I think that's that's exciting. And then in the therapeutics, you know, I think you're absolutely right, Ricky. There's so many different options with tubes. We have this, the super story space now. You know, Yontrek, Sean Angelo's company has already come out with a biologic spacer for the super story space that's already 510K approved. I'm part of a study called the iStar Medical Aminijack, which is in Europe right now, which is another silicone porous material going to the supercellular space to allow us to go ahead and, and re-access that space as well. We have now stenting that's already approved right now. The I stent infinite, I was part of that study, which is three stents for, for a refractory indication, going back and readdressing the conventional pathway in people who, let's say, are more refractory, even had a, having history of traps, you can actually go back in. We have data now that so supports us that 70% of patients had 20% reduction of IOP with the same or less medications, putting three eye stents in and people already had it too, or a trap. So reopening the conventional pathway, I think is exciting. You know, so we have that already out there. There's gene therapy being worked on right now, which is exciting technology, not only for healing, wound healing, but also with the trabecular meshwork and really reopening the TM from a, from a histopathology perspective, looking at blood flow. You know, John Berdahl's work with Equinox, with the, with the goggles, being able to help improve IOP nocturnally with these goggles, but also being able to improve ocular perfusion pressure at nighttime, where we think we have these NTG patients who are getting worse in the morning time because of blood flow issues as well. So, I mean, I could go on and on for days and days on all the cool stuff we're having. The bottom line is there's a lot going on. And I think we're just at the precipice of some exciting times ahead of us. And I would just leave us by saying this, the more we learn about glaucoma, the more we realize how much more we have to learn. And so I think we're just starting to really open our eyes now to the potential that we can do to help these patients, whether it's diagnostics, whether it's pharmaceutical agents, therapeutics, we have so many options out there. So those of you who are out there thinking about glaucoma, not sure if it's the right field for you, I'm mm -hmm. telling you, it's just a start. It's, it's exciting times ahead and, and just keep abreast and keep the excitement of learning. I mean, I love what you're doing, Doug, in here. Just keep this, this need to keep wanting to learn, wanting to engage with peers. I mean, we're so lucky now, and not, not to put names or anything, but when I was out, I came out of fellowship many years ago, it wasn't as collegial. And there was, there was like, you know, you had a super group, small group of glaucoma specialists who have controlled a lot of the podiums, et cetera. But now we have this glaucoma paradigm where everybody is so supportive of each other. You have those who are more experienced, those who are younger, all collaborating together, all supporting each other, and all trying to help achieve the goal of really helping prevent blindness, right? 
And so I think we're at an exciting time where we have such a supportive group of glaucoma specialists now who just want each other to do well. And I love, I love that. It's so exciting. So keep up the great work to everybody. It's awesome stuff. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate those the comments there, Dr. Singh. And, uh, and I feel like I, I see a little glimmer of a second episode for this, for this talk. <laughs> I think uh, we have a lot to talk about clearly with the innovation that is coming ahead. I think we could totally dedicate a session just to talk about those. And I would certainly be willing to bring that, bring that up if you guys are available. With that, I will pass the mic one more time just for some closing remarks. And I think we can, we can wrap it up here. Well, I would say thank you. <laughs> Thanks for being late. But I take the opportunity to listen to two other fantastic educators and surgeons. Someone asked me a while ago, well, Paul, you travel so much. You have a family. Why do you always leave the house? And, you know, what's, what keeps you going? And it's this stuff. It's, it's this constant interaction and learning from others. And that just gets me excited because we all do things differently. We all have our own gestalt. We all approach things differently. We can learn something from everybody we meet at every single time point. So thank you so much for the opportunity. And then please keep in touch. I'd love to come back. Okay, thank you so much for inviting all of us. It's really great. I, and like I always say, you know, I learned something from everyone and I learned a lot today. So thank you everyone for sharing your experience and your knowledge today. And I'll just leave one thing for the young ophthalmologists and the aspiring ophthalmologists to just never lose your passion for learning and find a learning opportunity in everything because there's always something to learn, whether it's a patient, an interaction, watching your co-resident, watching your co-medical student do something, there's always something to learn from everybody. I'm going to echo what everyone else said and say thank you for having us. Uh, thanks for having me today. Dagan, it's been so much fun to be on you know, two other brilliant and amazing glaucoma surgeons and educators. And in kind of parting words, I would encourage the other people out there who are wanting to grow as ophthalmologists and surgeons to take advantage of opportunities to travel to meetings, to participate in webinars, to connect with other people in the field, because this is where the exciting interactions and moments happen. You think of new ideas, you have people share things you wouldn't have thought of. And I think that's that's how we're going to keep moving things forward for our glaucoma patients is by, by learning from each other and working together to bring new ideas to the table. Wonderful. And it's a pleasure to have you. I'm glad you made it. I, I thought you were going to be busy with the newborn, but I'm, I'm happy that you made time with me. If you want more IT-related content, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Also, find us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Search for E by E-T-E-A-I-T. -E